Well, Father, you are awesome. You're good. We know you've done incredible things this last year. In the midst of the turmoil and what Satan has been trying to do, we know you will and have accomplished your purposes. And so we're looking forward to seeing what you have in store for us in the future as well. Uh, in store for us to see the lost saved, lives changed, families restored. Uh, and so we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning, specifically about politics. It's such a difficult subject and has brought such disunity. We, we ask that you would teach us what your word says and that you would bring true unity to the church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 12, look at verses 13 through 17, page 577 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse, and we're at this section. I'm entitling God and Caesar, what does the Bible say about politics? Now, you know that I just preach through the books verse by verse, right? And uh, I do not find it a coincidence that we just happened to come up to the passage on politics after uh, what has happened in this last week, especially considering the fact that I should have been here last week, but then very suddenly my brother-in-law was not doing well, and so we went down to Florida to see him. Uh, he's actually seeming to do better, too. So <laughs> prayer really works. Let me just say that, all right? Uh, but at any rate, um, so just it just so happens that we're preaching on politics after all of the things, the events of this last week. Uh, politics are polarizing and divisive, uh, but they are necessary and essential to a fallen world. What are Christians supposed to think about politics? Uh, should I even discuss the subject in the pulpit? Some people would say no. Some people would actually say that I'm supposed to skip this passage because it deals with politics. And, but can we agree to disagree agreeably? Or should we divide over whether we like Trump or not? Are there principles concerning politics that we can learn from in the Bible? At least that last question, I'm going to say yes. So let's look at our passage. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God. Truthfully, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Politics divided the Jews of Jesus' day. Here we're introduced in this particular passage 
with to the Pharisees and Herodians. We've already seen the Pharisees in the past, and we've also been introduced to the Zealots and the Sadducees as well. And those are four different groups that have a spectrum on the political sphere, so to speak. And really, you could say from left to right. Okay, uh, far left would be the Herodians. They they were in cahoots with Herod. They were totally politics is all that mattered. And we're going this way. We don't care about the Jews. We're going with the Romans, okay, the Herodians. Near them was the Sadducees. They had control of the temple, and they were also in bed with the Romans. So very much leaning in that way. Over to the far right, you had the Zealots. They were in favor of rebellion against Rome. They wanted to uh, go ahead and go to war against Rome. And, uh, you know, that Rome was the evil one and anything necessary to overcome that. Next to them was the Pharisees, also to the right, so to speak, but they did not advocate war. Uh, but they still hated the Romans, etc., etc. Okay, so these four different groups, they all hated each other, too. They all argued constantly with each other until this moment where they get together because they have a common enemy, Jesus. And that's what we see in our passage. Now, what I want to do with this passage is I first of all want to set the stage, so to speak, give some proper boundaries, and I see that in verses 13 and verses 14, okay? Then we're going to look at some basic principles of politics that we see in verses 15 through 17, and then I'm going to conclude with my personal opinion, which you can ignore if you would like, okay? So, so we're going to look at it in that way, and by the way, I want I really encourage you, no matter what the topic is, read the Bible for what it says, not for what you want it to say, okay? Also, if you find yourself on one or the other side of this spectrum, okay, that I described, uh, don't pendulum swing the opposite way. What does the scripture say? And that's what we're going to look at today. So I'm not going to actually get into any details on whether you should be Republican or Democrat. Okay. All right. All right. So, so just let's look at these principles that we see. So first of all, setting the stage, uh, proper boundaries. Verse 13, we see that politics can be a trap. Look what it says. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. Now, they're going to use this political question in order to trap him because if he says one thing, he's going to lose some followers. If he says another thing, he could possibly get himself in trouble with the authorities. So that's what they're trying to do. So they're using politics to trap him. Uh, the word trap is a gruo. It means to hunt or to catch and quite often is a metaphor for hostile purposes. Now, we need to remember, according to the scriptures, we are ultimately, as believers, citizens of heaven, not citizens of this earth. Now, the Bible does teach how we are also a part of this world that we are citizens within certain locations and we're supposed to pray for that particular city, et cetera, et cetera, right? OK, 
okay? So we have one foot in this world, one foot in heaven, so to speak, but we're ultimately citizens of heaven. And so we want to make sure, no matter what, we don't allow politics to trap us, to suck us in in such a way that it consumes us, okay? I think that would be a proper boundary that we can gain first of all, okay? Now, that doesn't mean, once again, that politics are not important. They are important, as we'll see from the scriptures, okay? But politics can be a trap. And the second thing I want to say is that Jesus is our only Savior, okay? In verse 13, we see, uh, or verse 14, I'm sorry, it says, when they came to him, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, notice here what they're doing. They, first of all, they butter him up, so to speak, okay, right? They're giving him this flattery, and then they lay the trap, right? But notice what they said was actually true about Jesus, wasn't it? I mean, they're actually speaking truth, not believing it themselves, but they're speaking truth about Jesus, and the truths are very important for us to understand, especially concerning politics, that we see here that Jesus is true, that it is all about him. We want to follow him, including in this whole issue of how are we to understand the importance of politics. Um, and, the, and so I would say, no matter what, Jesus is our only Savior. Look at how Jesus understood his role in this world. Look at John chapter 6, verse 15. He says, therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him the powerful one who could do the stuff that would bring justice and righteousness and all that, right? They wanted to make him king. He said no. Let's look at why. Look at chapter 18, verse 36. He's talking to Pilate here. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. I notice that. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said. He brings the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here in part even now, but it does not fully come until he comes back. That's when he comes as political ruler. That's when peace will come upon this earth and not before, okay? Jesus is our only savior. He came first to die for us, not to change political systems. He comes the second time then he will change political systems, absolutely, okay, and reign in Jerusalem for a 1,000 years. He is a king, it says in verses 37. Uh, but notice here, my kingdom is not of this world because if it was, I would wipe out all the bad guys, bring about complete justice, etc. So we need to understand that. In fact, in Mark, look at this 
passage here, Mark 14, verse 7. Very curious thing coming from the lips of Jesus, who seems like such a nice guy that wants to help people, right? Look at what he says in 14, verse 7. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. He's setting priorities, isn't he? You're always going to have the poor, and of course you should take care of the poor. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But the priority is Jesus, not taking care of the poor. You're always going to have the poor. You know why they're always going to have the poor? Because peace does not come until Jesus Christ comes back. That's when peace will be on this earth. And so we need to keep these basic parameters in mind. Now, back to the passage here. Uh, They're just flattering him. And flattery, uh, it's flattery if you say it because you want something. If you, if you say something to someone, and by the way, spouses do this sometimes, right? Okay. You say something because you want something. That's flattery. That's bad. Or you say something and you don't really believe it's true. Now, in this particular case, both of those were correct with the, uh, Sadducees, uh, with the Pharisees and the Herodians. We see that they didn't believe this and they were just setting them up because they wanted something. Compliments are when we truly mean it, okay? And we're supposed to compliment each other. And by the way, if you're a couple and you find a difficulty, maybe you're wrestling, maybe you're struggling in your marriage, you still need to compliment each other. You can find something good to say to your spouse, right? So that's, that's what we want to get, okay? So, uh, but they're using flattery here. But specifically, they say, you know, you do what is true. Listen, he not only does what is true, he is the truth. John 14, verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They say that you teach the way of God truthfully. Not only that, Jesus is the way, the only way to God. And so we must make sure we understand here. Jesus is our only Savior, Now, at times, politics can be very important. In our particular country, every two years, especially every four years with the presidential election, it becomes important, doesn't it? And we emphasize it a little more, perhaps. And and that's not bad, but don't let it consume you. Uh, Don't let it take you away from your first love. If you look at church history, the Revolutionary War, when we became a nation, you look at the preaching of the pulpit at that time. Prior to that, we had the first great awakening. And then the shift moved towards politics. And then the church's attendance even died. And the second great awakening, the early uh, part of eight, the 1800s, brought that back up again. We dare not allow it to take us away from our first love. So there's the parameters, okay? Politics can be a trap. Jesus is our only Savior. But Jesus does give us a very clear teaching on politics. Jesus describes two realms in verses 15 through 17. Let's read them again. But knowing their hypocrisy, so he knew they were full of it, 
He said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. They were utterly amazed because they were seeking to trap him. In his answer, he didn't get trapped. <laughs> so it's a, you know, he doesn't care. He, this, is, this is the way. Now he is, as we'll see, speaking against the zealots, isn't he? But he's not saying you shouldn't have anything to do with politics, as we'll see, okay? Let me read uh, from Daniel Aiken in his commentary. He says, Jesus asked for a denarius, the required tax and a day's wage for a typical laborer in Israel. So it wasn't a big tax, but it was a pain in the neck kind of a tax. It was a poll tax from the Romans showing their footprint over the Jewish people. Ironically, he does not have one. So Jesus doesn't have a denarius, but they do. He then asks, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. On one side of the coin was a bust of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The other side had an image of Tiberius's mother, Livia, with the words Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. The Jews found this to be idolatrous, a man claiming to be a god and a woman a priest, blasphemy. Now notice there, that's what was on the coin. That's why the Pharisees didn't like it. So more than likely, it was the Herodians that had the coin. (laughs) (laughs) But they're trying to trap him. Now, he goes on, he says, by his reply, Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. He is no anarchist. God has ordained the family, the church, and human government. It has the right to levy taxes, and we have the responsibility to pay. It has the right to make laws, and we have the responsibility to obey. Other writers in the New Testament, especially Paul and Peter, reaffirm and expand on this statement of Jesus, even though they lived when the lunatic Nero was emperor. Okay, so keep that in mind. So he describes two realms. The realm of the world, the governmental realm, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and the divine realm, give to God what is God's. Let's look at both. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, Here's a basic principle. We are uh, to, uh, God has ordained government. In fact, anarchy is worse than a bad government. Okay? We're talking, he's speaking these words with very bad emperors at the time. And so we are to obey our government. We see that very clearly in Scripture. If we had time, we'd look at Romans 13, 1 through 7. It says very clearly, obey your government. It says the same in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. It calls us to pray for our governing authorities, as we did this morning. And it calls us to obey them and to follow them. Uh, so, so we see that we are to obey our government. Now, by the way, it's kind of interesting. If you look at these passages a little more depth in depth, it also says what the government should be doing. So it does give, here's what a good government should be doing. It should be uh, catching the bad guys and helping the good guys, <laughs> okay? But even if it doesn't, obey your government. That's, that's what we see in these passages. So we are to obey our government, but also we can be involved in our government, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That might even mean uh, helping out 
You want to see your country go in the right direction. And it's a good thing to help in the governmental structure. We see that very clearly with Daniel. Daniel did that in both the Babylonian as well as the Persian empires. He, he was a man who did not fall under all the pressure that he must have been under. And so it's possible to, to serve in government without falling, without, uh, you know, you know, go, you know, just falling into the people who are trying to get you to do their thing, okay? So we see that with Daniel. We see with Esther. Esther stepped in. She talked to the king. She put her life on line. She did it for such a time as this, and it saved the Jewish people. And so we see the importance there. We see this with Esther. Uh, Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. An important passage where Jeremiah is speaking to those who have already been exiled to Babylon because the Babylonians came and forced them out of their home and exiled them up to Babylon. And this is what he said to these people. He said, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. So wherever you find yourselves, you pray for that city, that government, because when it thrives, you're going to thrive. But also it says, pursue the well-being. I think that would include whatever you can to contribute to the well-being, including government. So we can be involved in government. Uh, Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so we should be pursuing righteousness in our nation because the further away from God's righteousness our nation gets, the worse off for everyone it will be. And that's what we see very clearly in Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 also give us an important point it says speak up for those who have no voice for the justice of all who are dispossessed speak up judge righteously and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy we're supposed to speak up for those who have no voice we're supposed to speak up for the unborn children who can't speak out for themselves we're supposed to speak up for those who are experiencing oppression due to race or whatever we're supposed to speak up for them to defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. And so we see that we, I believe, can be involved in government. Now let me say a few things about government, some specifics, politics in the Bible. So we're moving away from Mark right now just to see some general principles taught elsewhere within the scriptures on politics. And the first thing that I would say, I want to compare capitalism versus socialism. Right now I'm going to Get some people upset. <laughs> Probably not here. But, uh, but capitalism versus socialism. Socialism, uh, basically, it teaches, uh, you know, let the government be in charge. Let it do everything for you and let it regulate everything. Capitalism says, no, you have to work hard. Otherwise, you don't get to eat. Okay? So those are the two structures. If we had time to look at these Proverbs, we would see that the Bible moves, uh, leans far more towards capitalism than socialism. 
it does advocate that we are supposed to work hard, and if we don't, we don't get. It also speaks of how personal property is something that we can attain through hard work. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 3.10 goes far to say, it says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. That completely goes against socialism. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It does not say if a man cannot work, he shall not eat. If people are struggling, if people can't work, whether it's due to a disability or it's due to the economic situations of the world, then, yes, we're supposed to help. And we're going to see, in fact, we see in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, even the government itself should put in play certain things to make sure people don't go hungry, to make sure people are taken care of. But... Notice, though, it's not just give free stuff away. So I think from this small section, we could say the Bible leans far more towards capitalism versus socialism. If you're interested, a book, interesting, uh, you might not agree with everything it says, but When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. You see, sometimes just by giving stuff away, we actually hurt, we enable, we hurt people. We want to help people not hurt them. And uh, in, in this particular way of the world, we see this idea that we want to encourage hard work, and that's what we see in the Proverbs. Uh, and I would say wicked leaders are bad for the country. Very, very clearly taught in Proverbs 28, verses 12, verse 28, and many, many other passages. Wicked leaders are bad for the country. Now, guess what? We've never not had a wicked leader, right? <laughs> because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But a leader who brings in wickedness and promotes wickedness, and so therefore I would say the policies is probably what you should go by the most. The policies. Uh, everyone's going to be fallen, but what are the policies that they're bringing in? That's important. Okay, uh, but wicked leaders are bad for the country. Um, I would say that identity politics are harmful. Now, first of all, what is identity politics? Um, identity politics is when you elevate an oppressed identity to show its special preference. Okay, so when politics do that, I'm suggesting that's actually bad for them. Identity politics. Look at uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Uh, an important passage of Scripture that actually our modern jurisprudence is based on this verse. Look at Leviticus 19, verse 15. It says, Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. So he's speaking of government and, and uh, judges, etc., do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Notice what he says there. This is where we get the idea of blind justice. The judge is not supposed to consider the person whether they're poor or rich. So no identity, whether they're rich, oh, hey, I might get something from them, this guy if I give him, if I help him out, or from the poor, hey, they're oppressed, so I'm gonna just side with them even though they were wrong this time. No. Blind justice is what this is teaching. It's the only way 
a governmental system can be truly fair. And so identity politics, the whole, uh, especially with the LGBTQ movement, uh, seeking the more of those particular identities you have, the more you should be, you know, favor, receiving favor. No, everyone should be treated the same because every single person is created in the image of God. And so should be shown respect, kindness, love, and care. But we see here um, what it says. Now, the, the, the last point, I think, is probably the most important. Globalism is the plan of Satan. Globalism is the idea where all the nations come together. Actually, the idea started at the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11, where the people got together to make a name for themselves. So rather than a name for God, all the people got together to make a name for themselves. That was scattered by God, but now it's being gathered. We see in the end, in the book of Revelation chapter 13, as well as Daniel chapter 7, we see this concept that in the end, when God takes his hand off the world, the, the nations will gather together, they'll work together as one, but not for God. Working together as one for themselves with an antichrist rising to the top. That's the plan of Satan, okay? So anything done moving in that direction is harmful, actually harmful. It's not good. The idea of nations, believe it or not, so nationalities, etc., is actually found in Scripture, and God promotes it. Even in the millennium, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, it mentions specifically different nations, Egypt, etc., Okay, so the idea of nations, a one-world system, a global system, they're calling for a reset now, okay, that is harmful to what we, to, but it is inevitable, okay, let me say that. So, but recognize very clearly, globalism is the plan of Satan. So now that's render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we also dare not forget render to God what is God's. Now, it might at first hand look like he's saying, you know, hey, there's equal. Politics, God. So I go to church and I vote, you know, or whatever. No, he's not, this is not equal. God has to always come first. In uh, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added into you. So render to God what is God's. And the gospel particularly is our priority. Yes, we're supposed to help the poor. Yes, we're supposed to save the babies at the PRC. Yes, we're supposed to do all of these other things, rescue uh, human trafficking victims, etc., etc. But the gospel is our priority because their eternal life is what matters the most. And so we share the gospel that people would be saved and changed from the inside out. We see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are all ambassadors for Christ, reconciling the world to Christ being saved. That's what it's referring to. So the gospel is our priority, but I will also say civil disobedience can be appropriate. That's a big question as to when and how and where. But if we had time, we could look at several passages, Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, and 5, verses 27 through 29, where we see that the apostles, John and Peter, 
were told by the governing authorities, do not witness in the name of Christ anymore. And they, their specific answer was, we have to obey God rather than man. In other words, yes, we obey our government, but God comes ahead of our government. So render to God what is God's. There are times, in fact, they were civilly disobedient. They did continue to witness, got thrown into jail a few times, but they were going to render to God what is God's. Uh, so civil disobedience can be appropriate. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, we see that Daniel was commanded by the governing authorities not to pray to anyone except the emperor for a period of time. But what did he do? He continued to do his regular practice, opening up the window, facing towards uh, Jerusalem, and praying three times a day. He disobeyed his government and ended up in the lion's den because of it. So his obedience to God got him in trouble. But it also got him out of the lion's den, didn't it? <laughs> okay, see the same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were told to worship the statue. They said, uh-uh. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. But God protected them and got them out of that. So a general principle that we can see here is obey your government unless they tell you to do something God tells you not to do or they tell you not to do something God tells you to do. That's the general principle that I think we can find as far as civil disobedience. For instance, the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as a manner of some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, so much more as you see the end of time coming. We're supposed to be gathering together. If the, if the world, the government tells us don't gather, we have to. Have to obey God. But other than that, we can obey, right? Okay. So that seems to be the basic understanding. Now, where are we heading um, for, and I suppose this would get to, to my personal opinion, okay? So now I've given you some, set the stage, the parameters, proper boundaries, then we gave you the basic principles of politics found in Scripture, uh, and specifically in this uh, wonderful statement of render to God, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's, and now my personal opinion. I believe that there's a calmness in Jesus' response, isn't there? A calmness. He's not worried, is he? You, you know, he knows in less than a week he's going to get killed, right? But there's a calmness. No matter what happens, we know that God is in control. You can handle whatever he allows with his strength. That's why you need to be seeking him. And you can be certain that he is trustworthy no matter what you may have to face. There is no need for worry, fear, or sin. We know that God is gonna show up. Now, where are we heading? It seems to me that God has taken his hand off of our country. That's my 
personal opinion. He's allowing us to go down a path that's not going to be good. What exactly does that mean? I don't know. You know, I haven't seen a vision of the future in that respect. But it seems like we're going down the wrong direction, in my opinion. It seems like, since this is the last bastion of freedom, this country, that perhaps we're getting close to the end. That he's taking his hand off the world. Now, we know that that's only for a short time. And that God will preserve us. Now, let me, if that's true, and if we start seeing more of these uh, birth pains found in Matthew 24. We're actually going to look at those when we get to Mark chapter 13, because Mark has a section on that as well. When we get to those, if we start experiencing those things, don't think that persecution is going to be constant and you're going to have to hide in a hole for seven years, okay? It could be, perhaps, somewhat like church history. Let me explain church history, okay? First century of the church, it was bad, right? Persecution, you've heard of that, right? You know, Nero putting Christians on posts and stuff. You know, bad, right? But we need to understand that not everybody was persecuted in the first century. In the first two centuries, the church had, was sporadically persecuted in different areas. So lots of people could go almost their whole lives with very little persecution sometimes. They just needed to be prepared just in case. It's possible. So we need to be prepared for persecution, but continue to live our lives, right? Continue to have families. Continue to seek to change the areas that you live in because great things can happen in the midst of all that. And if you get persecuted, God will give you the strength to endure, right? And so keep that in mind. It wasn't until the latter part of the third century that the worldwide, empire-wide persecution hit, and then that's when it was stopped by Constantine, okay? Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a pattern, but it seems like what we do see in Scripture says is God will not allow it to go very long. He actually promises in Matthew 24, God will not allow it to go very long. So he will help us. And what is God going to do in the midst of it? As I've said before in Revelation, I see three revivals taking place during the tribulation period. Incredible stuff is going to happen. I was talking to John about this uh, a couple weeks or so ago, and, uh, and he's like, yeah, we might be getting close to the end. And he was, he was almost giddy. <laughs> it's like, yeah, bring it on, right? He's like, no. <laughs> okay? God will get us through. God is on the throne right? No matter what, I hope we don't divide over politics. That we learn some of the principles. We always keep that love for Jesus first. And we do seek to change our country for the better and pray. Let's pray. Father, you are sovereign. You are on the throne. You are the king and we worship you. We know that you're in control, and we can rest. We also know that life is not easy at times, that quite often it's hard. And we've experienced that ourselves already in our lives. We've experienced some hardship this last year. We're asking you for a reprieve. We're asking you to give us some 
peace and uh, that you would kick out the coronavirus and that you would bring some normality again to our lives and to our country. We ask that you would help our leaders to make the right decisions and not evil ones. We ask that you would continue to save the babies, that you would continue to bring about justice, that no people group would be treated unfairly. We ask that you would help us to live our lives in the midst as a sweet-smelling savor, that people would be drawn to Christ because of our love for them and our love for you. Help us, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.